Turn on your Bibles, please, to John's Gospel and the chapter 3, and we will read together some verses in this chapter. John chapter 3, and reading from the verse number 22. So let us hear the Word of God. After these things came Jesus and His disciples into the land of Judea, and there He tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Enon, near to Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath, all things, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And we know that the Lord will bless the reading of these verses to all of our hearts. And I welcome you, welcome those online. We pray that the Lord will be with us and bless our souls as we gather around the Word and consider it once again. And we continue with this little series on character studies, and we're still focusing on John the Baptist, the one who was the forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the last study of a few weeks ago, we considered a certain characteristic that marked John's life and John's ministry, namely that he was a consecrated man. That feature of consecration flows from the fact, of course, that John was a man filled with the Spirit. His infilling uh, by the Holy Spirit was marked right throughout his entire life, motivating him to live in consecration to his Savior, the Lord Jesus. And so that was the first feature that we looked at concerning John the Baptist, a consecrated man with regard to those characteristics that he bore. That mark of consecration was accompanied by another outstanding feature in his short period of service, namely that he had a Christ-centered ministry. 
And so those are really the two outstanding features of this man's witness. A consecrated man himself, and then a man, and, that's, and this follows on, of course, a man with a Christ-centered ministry. Now, that is a salient mark of the Spirit-filled Christian, no matter who that is, and the servant of Jesus Christ. Filled with the Holy Spirit, we will be Christ-centered. The two go together, as I indicate. Turn with me to Luke 1, 2. That interesting little incident that you read in verses 41 and onwards for a few verses concerning the early, early days of John's existence. So, Luke chapter 1, verse number 41. And we're coming into the narrative here where Mary goes to visit uh, her cousin Elizabeth. And of course, Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist. Elizabeth is with child. John the Baptist is in her womb. Uh, notice what we read in verse 41. Luke 1, 41. It says, It came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And that's the first reference to John as a living person. Yes, earlier in the book of Luke, or the first chapter of Luke, we read of the promise, the prediction given to Zacharias that he and his wife Elizabeth would have this child, this son. And, of course, the conception takes place as we read in verse 24 of this chapter. But it's here in verse 41 that we have the first reference to the actual life of John the Baptist. He's still a babe. He's in his mother's womb. And we're told that when Mary came and greeted Elizabeth, and Elizabeth heard that greeting or that salutation, John leapt in her womb. Now, I know that that is unique in the sense of, of the circumstances here, but it's important to note it because remember that John was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. So already he's full of the Holy Ghost, and that's unique. That's a very unique uh, individual of whom we're reading here, who, who already is full of the Holy Spirit. But the fact that he's full of the Holy Spirit is demonstrated by this action of him in his mother's womb. His, it says that he leaped in her womb. That is more than the ordinary movement of the child in the womb. We know that whenever children are conceived in the womb, eventually the mother feels the movement. And uh, yet, this is something entirely different. The word here is leaped. And so, it is marked by energy and strength. It's marked not only by that, it's marked by the joy that John felt. And that's interesting because here is the Holy Spirit in this little infant in the mother's womb. And he suddenly leaps with joy in his mother's womb at the announcement of, or the greeting that Mary brings to Elizabeth, because he knows through the Spirit living in him that this woman who has spoken, Mary, is the mother of the Messiah. And so he, the forerunner of the Messiah, actually leaps with joy at that, or in this whole scene. And so, it's a wonderful little passage because of all the details that are there, and John responded with joy. It was the joy of the Holy Spirit 
the, the Holy Spirit who filled him at this time and caused him to leap within his mother's womb. So I draw that to your attention. What we're noticing there is that already John's focus is on Christ. This is the whole theme of this little study this morning. He has a Christ-centered ministry, and that Christ-centeredness is demonstrated in this remarkable, this unusual way. Yes, I acknowledge that, and it's true, but at the same time it brings out the point that everything about John the Baptist was Christ-centered. Now, going back to John 3, please, where we read, this Christ-centeredness is, is marked by true humility. If you look at John 3 and verse number 30, 30, you will notice what he says. John 3, verse number 30, it says there, He must increase, but I must decrease. Those are very well-known words concerning John the Baptist. But not only that, they are, they are words that belong to a whole section here in this passage. And in this passage, you, you will find that there was a complete willingness on the part of John the Baptist to diminish himself and to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ thereby. He uses some very striking terms in what he says here. and We're just focusing at this moment on verse 30. Look at the word increase. He says, he must increase. And the word means grow. So he's saying, he must grow. And the thought is that John is perfectly willing for Christ to grow in glory, in preeminence, in power, in majesty, in recognition by the people of that day and time who were flocking to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And John is perfectly happy with that. There's no jealousy on his part. Remember, he's the forerunner. And actually the story or the account shows here People were now leaving John and were going to Christ. And John was at peace with that, perfectly happy with that, because John has a Christ-centered ministry. He wants the Lord to be the focus of attention, not him. He wants Christ to grow in terms of this advancement of his ministry and even the popularity that he is enjoying and experiencing. The word must there that John uses, he must increase, means it is necessary. And so read it that way in verse 30. It is necessary, John is saying for Christ, to increase and to grow in that sense that I've explained in glory and in honor as the people flock to his ministry. Then the word decrease. He says he must increase. It's necessary for Christ to increase, but I must decrease. And the word decrease here is a, a, a very, very interesting word. It's a different word altogether, obviously, because to decrease is the opposite of to increase. But it's not even the same word in the, in the sense of the stem of the word. It's a different word altogether. It's not merely the negative aspect of it, but the very stem of the word. And the word for decrease means to make less to make inferior with regard to position or dignity. And here's John willing, as it were, to step back. He has been the forerunner. The Lord's ministry is only beginning, or has just begun very, very shortly before this. And already, people are following after the Lord, as I said earlier. They're, they're turning away 
from John, and, uh, and therefore John is under pressure. If you go back up to verse number 26, and you'll see this. John 3, 26, it says, They came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. This was actually an attempt of these Jews to drive a wedge in between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. They wanted to provoke John to jealousy. And this is how they tried to do it. They said, John, you bore witness to Christ. You were faithful to Him in presenting Him uh, as you did. As, and that, we'll see that a little later in chapter 1. But then they said, you bore witness to Christ, and now everybody's flocking after Him. And what they were hoping to do was make John jealous. This was the work of the devil. That's what's going on here. This is Satan trying to cause John's heart and soul to be filled with envy and jealousy and actually uh, maybe turn away from the Lord or, or rebel against the Lord. That was their goal. That was their objective. And we see that in verse number 26. And we should, we should note that. Because, you know, the devil is still busy wanting the glory to be taken away from Christ and centered on man. It doesn't matter who the man is. You'll find this in many of the New Testament writings and in the Old Testament. The Lord Himself certainly says that He will not share His glory with anybody. He deserves all the glory, all the honor, all the praise that we could ever muster up and heap upon Him. But what the devil wants to do is take that away from the Lord because he wants the glory. And therefore he uses men to try to get glory for himself. And you find even in the church of Jesus Christ this is true. Read 1 Corinthians 1. This is one of the problems in the church at Corinth. Some were saying, well, I'm a follower of Paul. And another person was saying, I'm a follower of Peter and so on, and Apollos. And so they were divided over personalities. Mere men, all of them good men, godly men, and that's the thing to note. They were all good and godly men, but people were saying, I'm a follower of Paul, but I'm a follower of Peter, somebody else says, and so on. And, and brothers and sisters, that was Satan's work again trying to divide the church at Corinth over personalities. And that's something concerning which we, ne we need always to be on our guard and, uh, and really pray against it in our own hearts, that our focus will be on Christ and on Him alone. And when, when that's the case, when all Christians in a congregation uh, are focused on the Lord Jesus and on Him alone, then there's no room for what the devil was trying to do here. So when John speaks down these verses, because verse 27 says, John answered. So he's answering this. He's responding to what had been said to him. Everybody's going to Christ. And then John begins to answer, for he knows what they're trying to do. And as in the course of that answer, he says this, he must increase, uh, but I must decrease. And so we're looking at these two words, increase as opposed to decrease, and we've seen what each means. 
The word decrease, as they say, means to make less, to make inferior. It's striking to find that that word is used of Christ in one instance. In Hebrews 2 verse 7, I'll read it to you or I'll just read part of it to you. If you want to turn it up, that's fine. But it says in Hebrews 2 verse 7, Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. And so the Greek word that means to, to, de- to decrease or to make less or to make inferior is translated in Hebrews 2 verse 7 to make lower, to make lower in the sense of inferiority. So in what sense was the Lord inferior? That's a good question. You know how the cults will try to tell you that Christ is not God? They deny His deity. And they'll point to maybe a verse like this, Hebrews 2, 7. Or in John's Gospel, a little later on, where he says, the fa- My Father is greater than I. And they'll latch on to those statements, and they will say, That means the Lord is not God. He was just a mere creature. He was the highest of all creatures, but only a creature. So what does it mean when it says he was made a little lower than the angels? In Hebrews 2 verse 7, or any of those other references like my father is greater than I, what does that mean? It means this. When the Lord came into the world, he came into a state of humiliation. If you've learned your catechism, you will know that. And I'm sure some of you can recollect that about Christ's state of humiliation. When he came into the world, he humbled himself because he came to be the mediator. He came to be the Messiah. It was a position of humility because the very first step that the Lord took in becoming the mediator was to assume our humanity, which means that for a period his glory was veiled. He didn't Uh, He didn't strip himself of his glory in the sense that he no longer was God, but his godhood and his deity, it was all veiled behind the human flesh that he took on himself. And so the very first step of the Lord's humility was to take our humanity. And that's what Paul writes about in Hebrews 2 where it says, he was made a little lower than the angels. Now understand that. Angels are purely spirit beings. Angels did not take our humanity for the simple reason that no angel is our mediator or our Savior. That's why it says in the same chapter, Hebrews 2, that He took not on Him the nature of angels. He took on the seed of Abraham. The Lord didn't come to save angels. He came to save men. And therefore, to save men, He must lower Himself. He must decrease in that sense of leaving the glory that he had with the Father in the sense of of putting it behind him for a while, for those years in which he was on this earth. He descends to this world. He takes our human nature. His glory is veiled. He has made himself a little lower even than the angels. And in position, that's the point, not in his nature, not in his essence, but in his position, he has decreased. He made himself a little lower. He was made a little lower than the angels. That brings out the nature of this word decrease. 
please follow what I'm saying here. The Lord willingly, willingly decreased or humbled Himself to serve His Father and save His people from their sins. And so, we go then back to John 3.30, and John the Baptist is using this word about his life and his ministry, and he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. You see, John had a proper view of Christ. He understood that the Lord's humility was part of his whole work to save his people. He humbles himself, he becomes subject to all the sufferings of this life, he becomes subject to men ridiculing him, mocking him, even smiting him. He becomes subject to uh, the devil in the sense of allowing the devil to tempt him and come against him. He becomes subject to the law. But John can see that the, the end of that all is that he will return to the glory that he had with the Father before he left heaven to come into the world. And knowing all that, John wants Christ to increase, and he's willing for his ministry to decrease, because he knows that his ministry is near an end. And very shortly after this, he will die, because where I started to read virtually there, I started at verse 22, but look at verse 24. It says, for John was not yet cast into prison, but the point is, he is going to be cast into prison, and he's going to be put to death, as we know from Mark's account and other accounts, he's going to be put to death for the sake of Christ. But all of this underlines that John the Baptist had a Christ-centered ministry in a very real and powerful way. And these words here in John 3 make this absolutely clear. John, uh, John the Baptist was completely taken up with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the last recorded testimony of John the Baptist, and then after this he's heard from no more. These are his last words. And so, he's all taken up with the Savior. Soon he will be in prison, soon he will be martyred, his public ministry will have, an, will have ended, and therefore, in his last testimony, he exalts the Lord magnificently in a most powerful way. John's final testimony about Christ is actually the same as the first testimony that he bore concerning the Lord. Turn back into John 1. Look with me at verse 22 of John chapter 1. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? that we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? Now notice that question at the end of verse 22. What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. He quotes from the Scripture. He brings in the Word. He's asked this question, what sayest thou of thyself? The sense of that question is this, John, we're giving you the opportunity to speak independently of God. That's what those words mean, really and truly. We're giving you the opportunity to say something about yourself or something 
out of yourself is what it really means. He's tempted here again to speak independently of the Lord, but he would not do that. He would not do that. And so in verse 23, notice what he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, it's not that the one who's in view, that is the Lord, is crying in the wilderness, but John's crying in the wilderness. Those words, crying in the wilderness, refer to him. Do you ever, well, we know that already, but that's a, a, a very striking thing about John's ministry. He stayed in the wilderness. He never really went into a big city or whatever. Now, the, as I showed you in an earlier study, the people flocked to him. They left Jerusalem, they left all the cities of Judea, and they went to John in the wilderness. But he was, he was a retiring individual. He, he was quite happy to be in the wilderness. But uh, looking at those words again, I am the voice of one, that is the voice of Christ, and I'm crying in the wilderness. Now, think about the first part of that statement, I am the voice. A voice you see, sorry, a voice you hear, but you don't see. We're all aware of that. You don't see a voice. You only hear a voice. And so John is simply saying, I'm very happy to recede into the background. I'm very happy to be heard. I don't want to be seen. I don't want men's eyes on me. I want the Lord to have all the glory. So at the very beginning of his ministry, he was really saying the same thing as he now says at the end of his ministry. He said at the beginning, I'm the voice, and I'm happy with that. I know he says at the end of his ministry, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so what you find is John hasn't changed his ministry. It was Christ-centered at the start. It's Christ-centered at the end. And you know, brethren and sisters, that is not easy for any child of God because this, the devil and people and the world are constantly seeking to take our focus away from Christ. Have us focus on self. That's the big thing. The Bible says that in the last days, men shall be lovers of their own selves. First Timothy 3. And we are seeing that all the time out there in the world. Men just love themselves. They promote themselves. They talk about themselves. They want everybody else to do their bidding and jump at their command and all the rest of it. And we see it so, so much. And it's found on every level certainly found among politicians. It's found among entertainers, so-called. It's found among sports people. The whole drive is to promote oneself. It's against the mind of God. It's, a, it's an expression of self-love. And no Christian wants to... Uh, take that on board and, and follow that out. Rather, we would rather we, sh we should want to be what John the Baptist was, that all the focus, all the attention would be on his Savior. As you go back to John 3 with me, please do that. Notice a few things that he 
that we can glean from his words here as a whole. His recognition of Christ. You see, he did recognize who Christ was. If you look at verse number 29, he says, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. And that's interesting because that's in the whole context of, of this attempt to get John to focus on himself and promote himself and, and so on. And as he, as he begins to speak in a very focused manner or in response to their attempt to get him to talk about himself, here's the very first line he uses. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. So he brings in marriage kind of strange because John never was married. As far as we know, there's no evidence of it in the New Testament. I don't believe he was married. But anyhow, why does he say this? He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Well, just ask yourself the question, who, who is the bride here? And the bride, of course, is the church, the Lord's people. See, they've come to him and they've said, John, everybody's flocking after Christ. And so when John says, well, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom, what he's really saying is, the bride belongs to him, not to me. That's what he's saying. And it's, it's a little parable you have in verse 29. Uh, really, in essence, it's, that's the nature of this scripture, it's a parable. But it's so appropriate. It's, it was given to John undoubtedly by the Holy Spirit to say this. Christ is the bridegroom. All those people flocking to Him belong to Him, therefore, because they are part of His bride. And so, the bride, the church, belongs to Christ, not to John the Baptist. And we can say that about any preacher or any Sunday school teacher or whoever the person might be in terms of, of doing a work for God. We can say that always, that the, the people of God, the church of God, they belong to the Lord Jesus, not to a man or a group of men. And so John makes it absolutely clear. He recognizes Christ as the bridegroom. And that, of course, runs through Scripture in many ways, that the bride is Christ. You see it in Ephesians. You see it in other passages. You see it in the book of Revelation. The Lamb's wife, the bride, the Lamb's wife, the church in her glorified state. You see, the bride was given to Christ by the Father. And therefore, He bought her with His own blood. And that's why she belongs to Him. But the church was given to Jesus Christ by the Father, even from all eternity. And in being given the bride, the Lord came into the world to do what was essential to redeem that bride and to purchase her by the work that He performed, the obedience that He gave, the suffering that He endured, the sacrifice that He offered all that came upon him. In other words, he bought the bride at a great price, the price of the precious blood. And for that reason, John says, he that hath the bride. And notice that. Christ already had the bride. She was his from all eternity. And he says, John says, 
He's the bridegroom. And of course, in owning the bride, the Lord not only had her by the gift of the Father, but also, as I said, by his own work for her, and he woos her to himself by the Holy Spirit and draws sinners into that blessed relationship with himself. And so, this is one thing that John makes very, very clear, his recognition of Christ. He's the bridegroom, and he has the bride. But then he also underlines his own relationship with Christ. Look again at verse 29. He says, going on here in this statement, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. His relationship to Christ is underlined in that part of the verse where he says, the friend of the bridegroom. That's how John saw himself. That's how he saw himself as a gospel preacher. That's how he saw himself as the forerunner of the Lord. That he was the friend of the bridegroom. Now, he bases these remarks upon the custom of the Jews with regard to uh, marriage. He's drawing his details here from that custom. And among the Jews, there was actually maybe a plurality of other men who were the friends of the bridegroom. It depended on um, how powerful the bridegroom was. And he might have needed a, a plurality of other men to be his friends. What you have here is what we call the best man in the wedding service. The best man's that fellow who is supposed to keep everything right and have everything arranged on behalf of the groom in many, many areas and different ways. And he does his job well, and, and, uh, and then at the reception, the, bride, the, the, the groom gives him a teasing and a ribbing over the poor job he has done. You know what I'm talking about, but that's really what is in view here. So, having a bride and a bridegroom and a best man is perfectly scriptural. You learn it from here, in the, even the bridesmaids, because in the Word of God it refers to that, for example, in Psalm 45, about those who accompany the bride. But anyhow, we're not going down that road this morning. I'm just showing you that John's drawing what he says here from that particular arena, and he sees himself as the friend of the bridegroom. And so, taking the Jewish custom, the man who was a friend, or there's a plurality of them in terms of a number of friends, it was their role to communicate with the bridegroom and also to communicate with the bride, to make sure that everything was done properly. That's what they had to do uh, for, in, a, in a main sense. But certainly for one thing, they had to communicate between the two, the bridegroom and the bride. And what is John really saying or inferring on that? Well, what was he doing? He was out preaching the gospel to the bride. And he was speaking to the bride on behalf of the bridegroom. And he was urging those who were sinners, who needed a Savior, to become part of the Lord's bride by entering into union with Him, becoming His bride. You see, people are not part of the bride of Christ naturally or by being born into 
church circles or even of godly parents. That doesn't make anybody part of the bride of Christ. There has to be a communication of truth to those people that they'll know their sin, that they'll see their need, and they will actually go to Christ and enter into this blessed union with Him. And that's what John is underlining when he says, He's the bridegroom, there's the bride out there, and I'm the friend who wants to see the bridegroom and the bride brought together. And so his duty was to promote the bridegroom's interests, to remove all obstacles, to bring about a union between the bridegroom and the bride. That was John's work. That's what he saw himself to be in this whole situation. He says, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. And so when he saw Christ's work prospering, when he saw people flocking to the Lord Jesus Christ and being received by the Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ being received by the bride, on the other hand, well then John could see that the goal of the bridegroom's work was uh, being uh, fulfilled and that his role was being accomplished, that his work was being done as a friend of the bridegroom. And that made him exceedingly happy. And that's what he goes on to say, does he not? As you come there to his rejoicing in Christ, toward the end of verse 29, it says, This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. And so, his relationship to the bridegroom was this. He was the bridegroom's friend, he had a message for those who needed the Lord. The message was well, actually summed up. If you go back to John 1, and we'll just look at that, John 1 and verse 35, you can see what the message was. John 1, 35, and I saw, sorry, again the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And it says, And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now, there's an example of two men. They actually were John and Andrew. John the Apostle, I mean, and Andrew, the brother of Peter. There were these two men who had been followers of John the Baptist in the sense of attending his ministry, being blessed under his ministry. But now... As soon as John says, Behold the Lamb of God. In fact, he had said it the day before. If you look at verse 29, it says, The next day John saith Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And then verse 35, again the next day. So there are three days there. Verse 29 refers to two days. It says there the next day. That means there was a day before the next day. And so there are two days there, and then you come to verse 35, and here's another day, a third day. And on the third day, again, they cry, uh, John cries out the very same message, Behold the Lamb of God. He doesn't change his message, it's the same. It's about the Lamb of God, it's about the cross, it's about the atonement, it's about bloodshedding. It's about the work of redemption. It's all there in that great title, Behold the Lamb of God. And as soon as he spoke this on that third day, in verse 35, two of the men 
who had accompanied him left him and they went to the Lord. But that's exactly what John wanted. Because he wasn't their Savior. And he's not the bridegroom. And he is working to this end and for this goal. And this is what gives him great joy to see people turning to the Lord and coming to know the bridegroom. He says, going back to John 3, 29, this my joy therefore is fulfilled. In fact, he says before that, that he rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Notice that. He rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. In what sense does he mean that? What he means is this. I'll put it to you in very plain language. John was saying this. I could preach until I am blue in the face, but nobody will be saved through my words. They must hear the bridegroom's voice. You see that? Yes, John did preach. And he did say, Behold the Lamb of God. But accompanying his preaching, there was the secret unseen voice of the bridegroom by the Holy Spirit calling sinners to himself. That's what those words mean. And John, therefore, is saying, the bridegroom is speaking, and men are coming to him. His bride has been gathered in, and that makes me happy. You know, there's no greater joy than seeing someone saved. There isn't. And it's for that that you and I should be living and serving and working. As I said earlier, the devil wants to divide people you know one of the ways he does it? A man could preach for years and there are people sitting out there who, are, who aren't saved under his ministry. Then somebody else comes along and preaches and they're saved under his ministry. And in that situation, that first preacher, if he allowed it to happen, could find jealousy arising in his heart. Why did I preach so long and those people that I preached to were then saved under so-and-so? And you know, that might happen in your life. You might give somebody a tract or you might speak to somebody about the Lord and then later on you hear that that person's got converted somewhere else or through somebody else. And that's really what John's saying here. He had preached, he had labored hard and long. Well, not long, six months actually. So that's how long his ministry was. And here are all these people now flocking to Christ. But that's what John wanted. For the simple reason that Christ is the Savior. He's drawing them. He's the bridegroom. And John says, I rejoice greatly. Brothers and sisters, it should give us the greatest joy, no matter where souls are saved, to hear that it has happened, that the Lord's at work. And I'm not talking about uh, the, the decision mill stuff, where people are talking about all these people getting saved and then you can't find them. 
I'm talking about those true conversions that take place and are still taking place. But it's the work of God. It's the work of the bridegroom. His voice has been heard in their hearts. He's wooing them by the Spirit. And therefore, it should cause our souls to leap with joy. And so, we therefore notice John's Christ-centered ministry. All of this detail is unveiling and presenting that wonderful characteristic or feature of this man's labor. He was a consecrated man, as we saw in the last study. Now we are seeing how Christ-centered he was. And as a Christ-centered man, he was completely unassuming. He had no desire to promote himself, no desire to to glorify uh, his name. He wanted the Lord to have all the glory. And though I say to you today, pray that God will give such men to his church because that's the kind of men who the Lord will use. Those who are completely willing just to step back. Let the Lord of all the glory. Yes, labor hard, preach hard, whatever it might be. Serve Christ at every level. People, men and women both, in their service for the Lord. That's what the Lord wants of us all, may I close by saying. He wants that of you that you'll be a friend of the bridegroom and you'll do everything under the sun to get the bride to Christ. And the outcome will be, when it's done for Him and for His glory, your heart will leap with joy. And may the Lord write His Word upon our minds today and bless it to us. And we'll bow together and have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we We come to Thee in the Saviour's name. We rejoice that we have been privileged this day to study the Word, to to glean from it. We ask, O Lord, that Thou wilt use that Word in all of our hearts, and Thou wilt make us like this man, John. This man in whom we saw was such a Christ-like man himself. O Lord, we pray that we will have likeness to Thee that was seen in John the Baptist and that our desire will be to to glorify Thee, that our names will just fade out of the way and uh, that we will decrease and He will increase and be magnified. We want that for Thee, Lord, in this town. We want that for Thee in this land. We want that for Thee across this world. O Lord, we pray that Thou will help us all to be friends of the bridegroom and labor from the dawn to the setting sun. Be with us now. Bless the upcoming morning worship meeting and keep your hand upon it. And be with us in the time of prayer as well and help us to seek thy face with all earnestness. We ask this for Christ's glory, for God's eternal praise. Amen.